0: NASA 557 contact tower 128.15 Caution,
1: caution, manual, fuel, manual, fuel I'm John Golia I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Cruz And we are the Flight Safety Detectives Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on
2: as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to
1: the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your returns just for listening to the show.
0: We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations.
2: So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, good day, Todd. How are you today?
0: I'm doing just fine, and I have my special assistant in back here taking a nap.
2: Yeah, I see her. Yes, well, it's just you and I today. Greg is off, uh, busy with some uh, additional business of his. So, um, I I found an interesting accident, and I just sent it to you about an hour ago. Well, it's an aircraft damage, not an accident, but it's it calls into question a lot of things like decision making. And, uh, and what can influence your decision making? So in this particular case, we have an airplane that took off from uh, in the, the uh, Africa in the Congo in a very small remote location. And something happened, whether there was some uh, ground damage to the uh, elevator on the airplane, or if it was fatigue, but in any event, a large portion of the left elevator separated from the airplane on takeoff. And after takeoff, the captain uh, had some problems. The airplane could only turn reliably to the right, not the left. So he actually flew some 500 plus kilometers at 30,000 feet with, with the ability to only turn the airplane to the right. and. I'm sure that there's a lot of pilots that listen to this that are that are not too happy to hear this, uh, but you know, in the U.S., that would not be a great decision. But why don't we get into it? You've got the report pulled up they, uh, in front of you. Why the. When we get into it, we'll talk about some of the issues.
0: This event happened on the 29th of January 2023, which is three days before we recorded this, and we only have uh, limited information, uh, primarily from. Uh, Av. Herald, and for those of you watching the video, you will see some photographs from this aircraft. This was a CAA aircraft, and forgive my pronunciation, Company Afrikan Aviation Airbus A320, which departed from the Mbujimaya Airport in the Democratic Republic of Congo to the capital, Kinshasa. It was about uh, 90 minutes between departure and arrival. But somewhere during the takeoff sequence, looks like the outboard half of the left elevator separated from the aircraft. And the pieces of that were found on the airport property itself. So presumably this happened right around the time of rotation. And it doesn't state how the pilots knew there was a problem. They just knew that they had a problem and they decided to continue. Now, a little bit about the departure airport. It seems to have very little in the way of infrastructure support. It didn't even look like there was a hangar large enough to uh, house an aircraft this size. And the headquarters of this aircraft was at the destination airport so in spite of the fact that there were flight control problems in spite of the fact that they were apparently they were unable to turn left or easily turn left at all uh, they continued to their destination airport things uh, came out okay there were no injuries also no word on how many people were on board no history we can find with this air aircraft of having previous accidents or incidents no major previous accidents with this airline. Their current fleet, which is a mix of turboprops and jets is I believe about 11 aircraft. And uh, other than these brief reports, we can only speculate as to what went on and what their decision making was. But I think John, as we were talking earlier, had this happen in most other parts of the world, the US, Europe, et cetera, that the uh, continuing on for 90 minutes to the destination when there's a flight control problem probably isn't going to be the decision that's made.
2: It would probably, the FAA would probably take your license away and you'd uh, be working real hard to try to get it back after making a decision like that. But when you play those other factors into the decision, you know, was there an, an adequate fire department on the airport? Was there an adequate hospital? And within striking distance of the airport, you know the city that they were going into is not exactly small, but in that part of the world, uh, emergency services are not always uh, what we expect uh, here in the United States or in the Western world. So it all of those factors I'm sure came into the decision making of the captain to try to get to a place that in the event that it turned into a disaster. On landing, that they could get the uh, better services, but it doesn't. You know, it begs a lot of questions because he, like you said, an hour and a half in flight, thirty thousand feet, not knowing the, the width and breadth of the problem back there. A uh, lot of, a lot of questions. And looking at the pictures, I'll put my mechanic hat on it for a minute. And looking at the pictures, you can see where the, the piece broke off from the from the airplane, and essentially, it's the The weakest or lightest part of the the elevator because it's outboard of the most outboard actuator. There's two actuators that move the elevator on that airplane. And then they're uh, in the vicinity of hinge one and three. And the problem with this, these departed pieces were at least hinge four and five. I, I mean, five and six. It looks to me like it actually started right around hinge four. So was there flutter involved with this? Was there ground damage while it was on the ground in, in, uh, in this station or maybe some other earlier flight in the day? Which I tend to, to say no, because I would expect one of those flight crews to have seen that on the walk around. But uh, sometimes that might be a bridge too far too. I'm assuming that they did a decent walk around every time they uh, prior to flight. But, you know, as I preach all the time in the show... These walk-arounds are necessary and there's lots of things that are missed. Uh, even here in the United States, there are lots of things that are missed on walk-arounds. So uh, that's not uh, here or there. So it looks like the, the, the weaker or lighter section of the elevator itself was where the failure was. Could have been flutter. Maybe there was a hinge failure that allowed it to, maybe number six hinge would allow it to flutter a little bit. The pictures of the piece that they found on the airport was clearly damaged at the wingtip, but, uh, you know, was it damaged when it come crashing back to the ground or was it damaged beforehand and resulted in the flutter and fatigue of those hinges? So it's a lot of answered questions, unanswered questions that, um, we'll have to go to the lab probably to figure out uh, the condition of like the hinges, um, at the time of separation to figure out if it was fatigue. Uh, There was another interesting piece that while you were looking it up, I looked. And uh, there's a number of service bulletins and ADs out against the elevators on A320s. And over time, they've had to replace them for, and I haven't dug deep enough into the documentation to be able to speak accurately or firmly on this. But I do remember that there were some issues that required them Uh, inspections and if they found a problem to replace the elevator. And when you're replacing the elevator on on these Airbus airplanes, uh, there's hours of inspections that go with them. And now you have a disconnect between the hours on the elevator and the hours on the airframe. And that has led to problems all over the world with airplanes, with record keeping and things that get missed, and so you have overflying hours on lots of of uh, seldom used components, and I say it that way because we have a difference in engines, particularly in engines where certain components, we change on a different hourly cycle than the engine itself uh, over time, and they get they get uh, mixed mixed it, up.
0: When it comes and, to those kinds of service bulletins, where Normally, you would have an oversight organization in the U.S., it would be the FAA, that would enforce uh, that these things be uh, changed if they're required. And again, it's unclear whether the oversight in the Democratic Republic of the Congo was sufficient to do this, because one of the things that is known about this country is that, according to the European uh, uh, safety authorities, any airline from this country is banned from flying in European airspace. It's not a knock against the airline. It's against the oversight capability of the organization. So as far as we know, this airline could be perfectly run, but they don't have a regulatory body, apparently, that meets the standards of the European authorities. And the FAA doesn't say anything about this country because uh, there had been no direct flights between airlines of the DR Congo and the U.S. But uh, looking at the history of the aircraft to try and get a sense of was this airplane in a place where they would have had these things done? Uh, this aircraft was built in 2009, I believe it was, and it was transferred over to this uh, country about uh, two years ago. Before that, it was apparently spending its entire service life in India, and it had been a leased aircraft with both of its, uh, both its current operator and its previous operator. So on the surface, um, it was apparently, at least for most of its life, in a situation in a country that had sufficient oversight that these sorts of repairs were probably done if they were required. There's no telling what happened once the aircraft was transferred to the DR Congo.
2: And in fact, in some ways, there's no telling what happened while it was in India, uh, because they have had a, a roller coaster ride uh, with oversight in India, uh, particularly with some of their low cost carriers. You know. India, remember, you may remember that India started the whole uh, bogus pilot license investigations. It led to hundreds and hundreds of pilots being discovered that never had pilot licenses or never had adequate training flying for a whole bunch of carriers in the uh, Middle East and and Far East where oversight just wasn't there. You presented your resume and your pilot's license that I've I've got X amount of flying time, and it was accepted with no no further uh, investigation. So, it uh, you know, aviation has been a different breed in in certain parts of the world. And developing countries, and both in uh, South America and Africa, have had their challenges with with qualified people and and uh, where the airplanes that other countries would not accept. So, it uh, it leads itself to a lot of interesting uh, issues over there.
0: And an issue a me... uh, challenge for people in the aviation safety world, like us, is that in many parts of the world, something happens. Even if something was uh, not resulting in fatalities or serious damage to the aircraft, or an incident like this would be fully investigated, the results would be publicly available, and there might be more than a little bit of media interest in this. So there would be some follow-up, both official and unofficial, where one can tell later on, well, was this resolved? Was this airplane put back in service? Was anyone punished or anyone uh, subject to fines or a lawsuit because of this? I'm not so sure this is gonna happen with this aircraft. Uh, first off, it was three days ago, and this had very little impact on global media. We happen to find out about this through one of the websites that basically focus on safety events like this. And the organization that would do the investigation it's unclear if that would happen. They've done these investigations in the past in VR Congo, but it's been difficult even to find the working website for their version of the AIB or the uh, NTSB. So I don't know if this is going to be investigated. And if it's investigated, would the results be easily available to the global aviation community? And frankly, this is an unusual event in that we can't remember a case where This part of the elevator came off the aircraft, not because of some very obvious impact, although we don't know if there was one, didn't come off at high speed or under high stress. This was a normal takeoff. And the pieces that fell off were found on the airport property. So whatever happened to this, in my opinion, was either inherent in that piece for some time before this, or something happened that put this piece of the aircraft in such a condition that it fell off on takeoff. Either way, it will be important to figure out, is this a one-off kind of thing that only happened at this airplane, with this airplane, at this airport on this day? Or is this something that could be a problem throughout the A320 fleet? We may never know.
2: Well, it, it may show up. I'm sure Airbus is going to go after the pieces, especially the hinges, because of the AD note and the service bulletins that are against it. So Airbus is going to be very interested in trying to get their hands on those pieces. And so the airline is going to be very interested in getting another elevator from uh, Airbus uh, for the airplane. So uh, Airbus may have a little leverage on these people and get their hands on those parts to put them in a lab and take a look and find out what was the mode of failure. So that they can uh, make sure that the rest of the fleet isn't faced with a similar problem, which may not have the same outcome. I mean, it's really amazing that this this crew was able to get this airplane back on the ground 500 kilometers away with only making right turns. Would you see trying to land in the, in New York or Boston with an airplane that only could make right turns and what that would do to the air traffic system?
0: Now, so like <laughs> information that could be on this aircraft, assuming that the voice recorder and the data recorder were fully operational you might've had the standard two hours worth of voice recording. So the entire flight, they would have had voice recording of it. You might have on typically 25 hours of data. So you would not only have data from the incident flight, you'd have data from several flights before then. If these boxes were uh, analyzed by an appropriate authority, a whole lot could be learned, whether this was something that happened on this flight alone or whether there were some telltale signs beforehand. But again, unless there is a formal investigation, and the results of that investigation are released to the public. We may never know. On um, the subject of airplane, Airbus... yeah, the chances of
2: them pulling the chances of them pulling a voice recorder uh, when that airplane landed are probably pretty low, unless Airbus had a representative that was there that was exercising a little bit of whispering in the ear, telling them what to do, uh, because they have no authority to actually order them to do anything like that. And given that they're Civil Aviation Authority uh, is weak based upon the fact that the, these air, the airplanes from this country are not allowed to fly into Europe. That tells you that, that their like, authority is, doesn't have the ability to monitor the airlines that operate in their country. So all of these things come together, uh, sort of indicate to me that our best hope is to get our hands on the physical pieces and get them into the lab to try to determine what was the mode of failure. Was it fatigue? Was it damage? Uh, we may never know. We may never know. But what it does, what this event does put a lot, big spotlight on is decision-making. And while I would probably side, fall on the side of many people saying he should have returned to the airport, knowing that the, there was probably limited uh, airport rescue and firefighting available, And I'll be generous and say limited. Uh, The fact that the emergency services were probably not going to be able to take care of all the passengers on the airplane, and not knowing how close to the airport the hospitals were in the event the the landing turned into something uh, different than the one that did occur. All of those pieces impact on a captain's decision. Well, I still think, I, while I said that I thought he should come back, I'm not so sure that that if I were making that decision, I wouldn't make the same one and go on. The airplane was flying all right. We got some limits. I don't know if I would have gone to 30,000 feet with it, but you know, he didn't go to the 38 or 39 that they normally do, so he was maybe being a little more conservative in that area. But it opens a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, in a whole host of areas, whole host of areas, human factors side of it and, and the mechanical side of it, thank God the outcome was what it was. It's pretty easy to sit back now and talk about it and say, oh, we can talk about all these bits and pieces. He had to make that decision. He had to protect them, all the people on board his flights. Uh Uh, I'm glad the outcome was all right and it proves that he made the right decision. He would have been subject to a lot of criticism if the outcome were different.
0: This is in situations where because of the weakness of the oversight of the civil aviation authorities, because of the fact that this was an incident, not an accident, so there's less official and major media attention, this is basically asking folks who might have information, hey, Look for this stuff on social media. Who knows? It could be someone on Twitter or who, whatever who has uh, information, albeit piecemeal, that'll give us insights about this. Right now, that might be the industry's best hope to find out more about this than the small amount of information we have now.
2: I hope somebody's going to interview some of the people on that airport. You know, because I've been around airplanes on the ground a long time and people drive stair trucks and catering trucks and, all kinds of vehicles under wings around the airport that, that uh, they shouldn't, and uh, and I've, I've seen gouges in the wing where nobody knew they happened. Nobody knew, you know, how did this happen, and everybody had amnesia, so uh, there, there's a lot of issues in this one uh, to be explored, and uh, let's hope it's, uh, it, it, it is done, a, Airbus does a good job to find out just what happened back there because, you know, where there's smoke, there's going to be fire if there isn't there now. And service bulletins and AD notes against an elevator mean, especially an AD note, means that we've seen problems back there before. There are issues back there. And uh, let's make sure we get to the bottom of this one before we have uh, one that doesn't have the same outcome. Well, with that, I think we've talked this little into depth. We will be watching it in the future. If uh, more information becomes available, we will talk about it some more because it does does have some interesting elements. Like I said, decision-making for one, also inspections uh, for another. So we will be watching it closely. And if if we get any more developments, we'll raise it. And uh, since it's just you and I this time, Todd, you get the second last word. Very good. Well, this
0: time, the second to last word isn't about the air crew or the oversight or uh, the manufacturer. It's about the passengers in that uh, you and I have both flown in various parts of the world where safety oversight and safety uh, levels aren't what we're used to in the US or Europe. But if you're flying in that kind of environment, that part of the world, you're there for a reason. And you're accepting those risks that come with that. If the choice is I either fly there and visit or I don't fly there and visit, and you have a motivation to do so, air travel might be the best, most convenient, quickest way to do so. And the alternatives would be even more high risk than what we've seen in this event here. That's a personal decision. And for some, it's not an easy decision, but uh, you can either complain about the fact that it's not just like home, or you can make an assessment, make a personal decision, and live with the consequences.
2: Well stated. All right, and as usual, I will talk about things closer to home, and that is what every pilot should be doing before he goes flying. Do a thorough session of pre-planning what you are going to do if something happens. uh, There was a recent accident, and I only only know it from like a 5,000-foot view but on takeoff, engine failure, and try to make the impossible turn to go back to the airport that he just left. And that's, that's a, one of the worst decisions a pilot can make. You have an engine failure or loss of power on takeoff, look in front of you and find a place to put it down. Don't try to turn around and go back. You don't have enough altitude. You don't have enough speed. You, it's, they call it the impossible turn for a reason. So pre-plan your flight, pre-plan for any of uh, a whole sundry of possible failures. When you get out to your airplane, take a good look at the airplane, a good pre-flight. Remember, oftentimes your airplane's been sitting out there for days and days or weeks or more. Take a damn good look at your airplane to see and ensure that nothing has happened to it while you were gone. Especially critters deciding that that looks like a good place to build a house you know, in the many nooks and crannies inside an airplane. So do a very thorough pre-flight. When you get off the ground, put that head of yours on a swivel, because we're still seeing mid airs close to airports, and it's it's just, it's crazy. This, in fact, is a video I just saw where a a slower airplane was overtaken by a bigger airplane, uh, all general aviation, with a near-miss in between there overtaken by an airplane, where was that pilot's behind his head? You're overtaking an airplane in front of you? Are you not looking out the window? Anyway, please, we got a lot of risks out there. Pay attention. Use your head. You've you've got your pilot's license because you showed you have the demonstration. You've demonstrated to somebody that you had the skills. Don't forget about all those skills. Protect yourself and protect other people in aviation. And please, please fly safely.
1: Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep
2: in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube.
0: You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that,
1: and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.
0: At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.